Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Once every several weeks, this church, with the help of other concerned citizens, brings a voice of conscience to this podium and turns him or her loose on those assembled in this sanctuary and the radio and TV audience. The person speaks on the subject of his or her consuming interest and expertise for half an hour and then fields questions for another 30 minutes. All of this is free and available for the coming, the watching, the listening. Do join us on a given Thursday noon that a program is planned. When we remind ourselves that our bodies are 90 to 95 percent water and that we cannot live without fresh water, when we read that one percent of the world's water is potable and that that one percent is in danger, when we learn that one half of the world's fresh water is held in the Great Lakes, which to me is an astonishing figure, the largest of which lakes borders our state, we can delight in the fact that our speaker today is Dr. Joseph P. Rosillian, president of the Freshwater Foundation with headquarters here in the Twin Cities. He comes uniquely well qualified to address the topic, the national water crisis, how it affects the individual. Mr. Rosillian, we welcome you, sir. Thank you. Traditionally, when you talk to people in this part of the country and refer to a potential water crisis, the first thing that comes to mind is, will the ice be out in time for the fishing opener? Second great crisis issue is, should there be more public access to Lake Minnetonka? Another great big one is, what's all that green glunk in front of my cabin? How did it get there and how do I get rid of it? It's a crisis when the fish all die or when the river catches on fire. And I suppose if you're a farmer or a manager, too much or too little water becomes a crisis not unlike the situation we're facing today. But these kinds of crises can be handled. The system is designed to handle these crises. They're seasonal, they come and go. We're used to dealing with them. We've got a new problem coming down the road. It's ongoing, it's growing, it's constant, it's national, it's new to us, it won't go away and it doesn't fit into the system. And that's the challenge. What I'm talking about is the national, economic, social, and political water issue 
that's rapidly reaching crisis proportion and how it affects us. We're going to discuss three things today. First of all, we're going to talk about the issues. What are the issues? Then what are the challenges? And finally, what are some of the potential solutions? So what are the issues causing this crisis? Well, issue number one is the whole social, political, economic impact of water. The social issue occurs because for the first time in the history of the United States, no water manager in the United States can assure his constituency of an acceptable water supply five or ten years down the road. I just think of that. We are so accustomed to turning on the tap and the water will be there, it will be acceptable for our uses, and for the first time, no one is sure that that is going to be the case. When we talk about acceptable water supply, we should stop here, I think, and get a clarification of some definitions. Uh, there are all kinds of definitions for water that we use all the time. First two, I think, are clean, clean water and pure water, and frankly, I don't know what either one of those mean. Next, you have safe, usable, and acceptable. Safe water supply means that that water supply meets minimum standards established by the Environmental Protection Agency for known contaminants. That's what safe means. It doesn't mean they're not in there. It means it's safe to consume. It's what we normally call potable. Usable water is water that is accessible and acceptable for some specific purpose may not be potable, may be sewage water used for irrigation, but it is a usable water supply. Third, third definition is acceptable, and that's the subjective decision. Acceptable means it's all right to you. You're willing to pay the cost to have that put there. You're willing to use it for whatever purpose is intended. In August of every year, especially during the dry years, the Twin City water supply is not acceptable. We get an increased growth of algae in the Mississippi River. The water smells. It tastes funny. Everybody complains. I even had a neighbor who asked the people not to take baths. He couldn't stand the smell any longer in his office. That is an unacceptable water supply, even though the Environmental Protection Agency or the Pollution Control Agency and the Department of Health says it is a safe water supply. So when you use those terms, make sure you know which ones you're using. And that water manager doesn't say he won't have a safe supply. He says, I can't assure an acceptable supply five years down the road. That's the social impact. From a political standpoint, for the first time in the history of the United States, we're not sure who owns the water. Truth of the matter is, nobody can own it. What you own is rights to use. We have two different kinds of law in the United States. We have Eastern law of riparian rights, riparian ownership, Western law, prior appropriation. Eastern law says if you own property, you have certain rights to water on that property. Western prior appropriation law says first guy asks gets first use. Next guy gets next use of whatever's left and on down the line. Both of those laws are now under contest. What happened was a few years ago, a farmer out in, South, in uh, Nebraska, man named Sporhase, irrigating in the western part of the state, having a wonderful time. He had some land in Nebraska, also had some in Colorado. He was irrigating in Nebraska. That's where all his wells were. He decided he'd irrigate in Colorado, just run the pipe across the uh, state line. The state of Nebraska says, you can't do that. 
We have a law that says you can't take water out of the state of Nebraska. You know how farmers are. He took it to the Supreme Court and won. Water is now a commodity that comes under international trade, international commission or, or commerce, and you can move it from one state to the other. That was the first shoe that dropped and got everybody's attention. Following that, a Supreme Court ruling occurred in the Southwest where the Supreme Court of the Southwest said to the city of El Paso that the city of El Paso, Texas could go into New Mexico against the wishes of the state of New Mexico, could go into New Mexico and drill 316 wells to provide water for the city of El Paso because, quote, the needs of people take precedence over ownership. And all of a sudden, the question is raised, who gets to use the water? Here we sit in Minnesota in a state that we've always considered as water-rich and rather smugly about the amount of water that we have, and the Supreme Court says, no sense being smug. The question is, who needs it most? And I can tell you about 49 other states that need it worse than Minnesota. And so you have another issue that you have to face. Since that time, in the state of Ohio, they refined that ruling one more time. In Ohio, they said, you don't have first right to the water underneath your land if people have a greater need. That ruling was also clarified by the Minnesota Supreme Court up in the Crookston area. And so even though the water's under your land, you may not have first call on it. And finally, the final refinement of that is the state of California that said industrial development does not qualify under needs of the people. So just because people have first priority doesn't mean that you get it for industry, manufacturing, or for the city other than primary use. That's the political issue that's got everything up in the air. The third issue then, the third part of that is the economic question. The economy of the United States is based upon free water. Nobody in the United States ever had to pay for water. You paid for a service. Water is free. You can get a bucket, go out here to the river, get yourself a bucket of water, perfectly legal, as long as you don't trespass getting there. Back a truck up, put a hose in there, fill the truck up, go home, that's legal. Because water at the source is free. What we pay for is service. You pay to pump it, to clean it, to deliver it, all of that business. A few years ago, Governor of South Dakota sold the water behind the Oahe Dam in the Missouri River to a coal slurry pipeline company, ETSI. Said he thought it was a good idea at the time. Although that deal was never consummated because they didn't, the coal slurry company didn't continue with its process, it established a precedent in the United States that has everybody rolling their, eye, their eyeballs back into their head. Because for the first time somebody said, hey, water lying there is worth something. It's not free, it's worth something. And right away, states who are having difficulty balancing their budget said, wow, what a wonderful way to balance our budget. We'll sell the water and make some money and balance the budget. Now think about it, folks. There's more than one step between free and making money. You have free water, then you have subsidized water, water that's distributed for less than what it costs to provide it. Then you have water at its natural value or paying a fair price. And then you have making money on water. And we went from this end, jumped right over to this end. 
to the degree that right away the Congress of the United States started talking about user fees. And the buzzword in Washington, D.C. is bendable projects. What projects are most saleable? Not which ones are most important. Which ones are most vendable? I suggest to you that sewage treatment will never be very vendable. And will probably be a low priority, maybe is why it's a low priori priority item in the Congress today. So the first issue we have causing this crisis is the social, political, and economic crisis. The second part is what I call a societal overload. Too many people bunched up in one place. I used to say all the time, one of the problems we have with water is we've got too many people going to the bathroom. Now, the reason I made that point is because you can't dispense with either one of those problems. You can't get rid of the people, and you can't quit going to the bathroom. That's really not a problem if you spread out. But when you bunch up, like we tend to, tend to do in our urban areas, like the Twin Cities, then you overload Mother Nature. And our whole water system is based upon Mother Nature working in balance. The other part of the societal overload is that we have a basic truth, tr basic belief in the United States that anybody can go any place they want to go and then we'll move the natural resources over to provide them. Move water to the people. That doesn't work. And that brings up the third issue, which is that we forgot the three basic rules of water management. Rule number one is that water is an intimately interrelated system and man intervenes into that system for good or bad. You can't redesign a water system. You can't manipulate it. You can only manage it. And every time we try to manipulate it, like move the Great Lakes to Arizona or some idea like that, it ends up biting us in the back end. And I know, basically, we all feel that the last guy that created the earth only spent six days and probably should have been more specific. Probably should have spent a little more time in detail. But I suggest to you that if we take more than six days and even use the Corps of Engineers, we're not going to get a better job done. We're probably going to have to accept it the way it exists today. Rule number two of the three rules of water management is man's paradox. You see, water is not clean. It's not supposed to be. Water is Mother Nature's sewer system. Everything in the universe ends up in water. And then it goes through the process of cleaning itself and getting itself in balance. But we as people need clean water. So we use water as a sewer to get rid of the stuff that we don't want and then turn around and try to use the same supply for our own system and wonder why we get sick and get, out of tr and get in trouble. And again, when you bunch up, like we do here, and you're putting your sewage in the Mississippi River, and you're taking your water supply out of the Mississippi River, and you wonder why some days it talks funny. Well, think about it. There's probably a reason why it's different some days the next. If you have few people and a lot of water, you don't have that much of a problem. It's when you have a little bit of water and a whole lot of people that the imbalance occurs. Third rule is the one I call the septic rule. Instead of thinking of water as clean or as a swimming pool, we should think of it as rural people think of a septic tank. You know, people who live in the rural community are dependent on a septic tank functioning properly for their survival. Functioning properly, it does what it's supposed to do, maintains a healthy environment, re recycles itself, 
Everything works just fine. But there are three things that'll foul up a septic system. You overload it, you kill the bacteria, or you introduce something that the bacteria don't recognize. So what do we do? We put a million and a half people in the metropolitan Twin City areas using one water supply. In effect, we overload the system. Now, because we drink the same water that we use as our sewage treatment system, we say we've got to clean that up, and so what we've got to do is we've got to kill the bacteria. Now remember, folks, only 10% of the bacteria are bad guys, 90% are good guys. But in order to get rid of the 10, we end up killing the 90. So now we've overloaded the system. Second thing we've done is we've killed the bacteria. And then since World War II, we've introduced all kinds of exotics that Mother Nature has never recognized. Synthetic chemicals, toxins, they just lay there. Mother Nature says, they my job. If they're carcinogenic or toxic, they stay there forever, and also they're dangerous to our own health. So what we've done with our water supply is we've done the three things that no one with a septic tank in his right mind would ever do. And we say, how come we're in trouble? That's the explanation. Those are the issues. What are the challenges? Especially the challenges that we're going to have to face before the year 2000. Well. Issue number one, I think, is we have to get involved with managing groundwater. I'll give you a couple of very quick fun facts for you to know. Of all the water in the world, 96% is salt, 3% is glacial ice cap, and only one is fresh water. 1% is fresh water. So we're dealing with a very small percentage of water to provide for all of our uh, existence. Of that 1%, Dr. Meisel said that the Great Lakes, high percentage of all the water, all the surface, all the water in, or fresh water in the world, no, it's all of the surface water in the world. Of all the fresh water in the United States, 95% is groundwater. Only 5% is on top. And yet all of our legislation, all of our management is geared towards the 5% and is for years ignored the part that we exist with. In the United States, 97% of the rural communities use groundwater, water below the ground, for their drinking water. 94% of the communities in the state of Minnesota use groundwater for their drinking water. In the United States, 66% of those farmers have wells that do not meet EPA standards for at least one contaminant. In Minnesota in the last five years, 150 city wells were shut down. There were 2,000 shut down across the United States, 2,800. And there are 1,500 potential contamination, groundwater contamination sites in the state of Minnesota. In the state of Michigan, 64 out of 83 counties have contaminated groundwater beyond use. In Iowa, in four counties, in the northeastern corner, they were doing a test to find out how the groundwater was. Two out of three wells in those four counties were, were contaminated with either Lasso, Atrazine, Sencor, Bladex, or Dual. Now, you know, if it's just a farmer and his wife, they can go to town and buy water by the gallon. But if they're milking cows, the Department of Health will shut them down. In Cape Cod, three out of four golf courses tested were contaminating the groundwater with at least five chemicals. And in addition, in the United States, we have two million underground petroleum storage tanks. It's estimated that within 10 years, 60% of those will be leaking. We don't even know where they all are. 
Many of them are on rural communities, rural areas. A lot of them were on old filling stations that were uh, uh, discarded and the tanks weren't withdrawn from the ground. And if you want to know what impact that has, one gallon of gasoline can contaminate 700,000 gallons of water beyond human consumption, and that's the water supply for a community of 50,000 people for the community of St. Cloud. One day water supply. So leaky underground storage tank may be the greatest impact we have, biggest concern we have with the necessity to manage groundwater. Second issue, we're overpumping the groundwater. Areas like the Ugalala Aquifer, which is from Nebraska all the way down to Texas, includes uh, uh, New Mexico, Colorado. Say by the year 2010, 90% of the water left in that aquifer will be under the state of Nebraska. That means two things. One, it means those other states are going to have to go into an alternate agricultural process that will have an impact on food. And the second thing is we mine one heck of a resource in the lifespan of one man. Second issue, water and the health connection. See, water, one of the reasons we haven't concerned ourselves about water in the past is because primarily it's an environmental issue. But what we forgot was that water is necessary to our existence. Water as Mother Nature's sewer system is very basic to the whole health system. And what we're discovering now is that much of our water delivery systems are obsolete. Water treatment in the United States is based upon 1916 technology chlorination, which does not deal with toxins or trace metals or carcinogens. In fact, it in some instances increases the potential for carcinogens. To upgrade that system in the United States is going to cost $200 billion. Sewage treatment in the United States is based upon 1928 technology, using bacteria to break down those things that are degradable. But the major problems we have are toxins and carcinogens that are not degradable. That system is obsolete. Going to cost $120 billion to upgrade that one. Federal government has listed in its budget three-tenths of a cent of every dollar for water. Three-tenths of one cent of every dollar is all that goes to water, which means that the bulk of the money coming for these upgrades are going to have to come from the states and local communities. And the failure to do that, of course, is not obsolescence, it's disease and epidemic. Third major issue but the challenge coming down the road is the economic issue. The economy of the United States is based on free water. As we said, nobody paid for it. Food production is the number one user of water in the United States. Not farming, food production. We were interested to find out what impact, how much water did it take to grow things. We found out it takes 1,000 758 gallons of water to grow a pound of grapes. 358 gallons for a pound of cherries. 135 gallons, pound of corn syrup. 130 gallons for a pound of milk. 118 gallons for a pound of oats. 106 gallons for a pound of wheat. 95 gallons for a pound of apricots. 89 gallons for a pound of corn. In fact, Jankalo in South Dakota, the governor sold the, the water there to that cold slurry pipeline company for two-tenths of a cent a gallon. If you took that price, a nickel for every five, or a penny for every five gallons, 
and charge that, it would cost you $10 for the water to grow a bushel of corn that's now selling for somewhere around $1.40 a bushel, which says you really couldn't afford to irrigate. Apples, 49 gallons for a pound. Strawberries, 17 gallons. Potatoes, 23 gallons for a pound. Put any price you want to on the water and you see how the price of food will have to grow. And when you start adding water charges to balance the budget, as some states have talked about doing, you're going to break the consumer because that jump from free to income generator is so large. All right, what are our options? What are some of the solutions? First of all, I think the model for the 1990s is going to be reduce or reuse the choices yours. We have a real advantage that we didn't have over energy and that we can recycle water. We can begin to look at how we use water in industry, in manufacturing, in the home, and reduce. And I think in order to get that to do, we'll need price increases and economic incentives. In other words, you're going to use less, it's going to cost you more. And that's a reality we see coming down the road. We're going to need new designs, creative uses. Recycling. Key to recycling is attitudinal. It must be acceptable. The first time they used water from a sewage treatment plant on a golf course down in Arizona, golfer said, you can't do that. It'll rot out my golf shoes. That didn't make an awful lot of sense when you think about it. First time they tried to use it in Ohio, the EPA said, you can't do that because golfers put golf balls in their mouths. Now, I know the IQ of a basic golfer, but I think they're trainable. Now, in Florida, you can't build a, a, a housing development without a golf course because that's where the water goes from the sewage treatment plant, and that's as it should be. But it was an attitudinal change that had to occur. In order to reuse, we have to first make sure that it's clean, that it's safe, and we have to do it cheaply. One of the focuses of the Great Freshwater Biological Institute is to develop biological methods, help Mother Nature clean up those contaminants that we put in and do it as cheaply as possible. We have to reclaim those waters that's contaminated with the help of the community of Minneapolis, University of Minnesota, Freshwater Foundation was instrumental in developing a company called Biotrol that's trying now to develop ways to clean up toxic sites around the Twin Cities that are contaminated with pentachlorophenol so that we don't lose that water supply and yet do it cheaply so that you can afford to use the water after it's done. Reduce and reuse. The choice will be yours. Number two, we're going to have to change our farming practices. We've got federal programs recommending that. It will occur. It's going to increase the cost of food, and it should. There'll be less irrigation. We'll need less, more control on chemicals. All of this will affect production and will increase the cost of the product. And I think we need to look at regional priority setting. The time when anybody could go any place they want to go and do anything they want to is gone. What we, where we go and what we do will be dictated by the resources that are there, not by what our individual motivation is. People must be involved in that decision-making process. I don't think you can move the Great Lakes 
And if you're going to have an industry that requires high volumes of water, you're going to have to be on the Great Lakes or the Mississippi River or some other body of water. Populations in Phoenix will have to be low water use, highly sophisticated communities. The state of Arizona has already passed a law to ensure that. People are already becoming involved in the process. Great Lakes Center is involved in helping the Great Lakes determine for the first time in the history of the Great Lakes through the charter that the concern that the sum of the whole of the Great Lakes is more important than any individual entity. The International Coalition for the Red River Valley for the first time got North Dakota, Minnesota, and Canada, Manitoba together to agree on how to manage the Red River Valley to keep it flooding for the benefit of all. Flathead Basin is now involved with the commission trying to find out how to maintain that valley before it's completely uh, uh, decimated. And we're pleased that the Freshwater Foundation has been involved in all three of those. Just remember the glory days are over. All the solutions, we've used up all the easy solutions, we've used up all the cheap ones. All the solutions are going to cause sacrifice and they're going to cost. And that's not so bad. We went through it with energy and it didn't hurt us at all. I would be remiss if I left this church setting and didn't capitalize on it and talk just, to, just one minute about stewardship. We talk a lot about stewardship. What is our responsibility? I think stewardship is managing our resources to perpetually maintain our own existence, or in other words, stewardship, I think, is being wisely selfish. We're not here to manage the resources for their benefit. We were put here with the resources to assure us an ability to exist. And then the maker stepped back and said, now let's see how well you're going to do that. And that's what stewardship is. That's what's being wisely selfish. Putting it very simply, if you're dependent upon trees for your existence, don't cut down the trees faster than they grow. Water can get along just fine without us. It'll recover itself, it'll clean itself up. We just can't get along without it. Stewardship is making sure that we maintain that water supply sufficient to support ourselves as a civilization. I suggest that the challenge to you then is to manage our water use to assure our own preservation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rosillian. I was, we all were alerted that you were a highly competent uh, person to speak on a highly critical issue, and those advances were uh, highly accurate. Uh, we're all sobered, I think, as we uh, sit here and, and listen to the kinds of things that, that you've been saying. And uh, indeed, this sanctuary should be full today, given the agenda. And I'm hoping that the radio and TV audience will be very much there to uh, hear this, uh, this alert that you've sounded so very well. More like Demosthenes than, with, than the man with the golf balls in his mouth, I might say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me just uh, for a moment uh, give uh, those who must leave an opportunity to do so. 
Uh, also to encourage any of you who have questions, and I can only believe there are many of them, not least of all from our several groupings of young people here today, three at least, uh, those questions will then be uh, passed up to me and, and shared with our speaker. Uh, let me just remind our radio audience that they have been listening to Dr. Joseph P. Rosillian, who is president of the Freshwater Foundation. And this program has uh, originated from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that this fine program has been significantly co-sponsored by the Baker Foundation, and we thank them. Well, I see no reason why we shouldn't uh, launch into the question period right off, sir. So would you please return to the podium? Uh, the Mississippi River and is synonymous with uh, the Twin Cities and Minnesota. Uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to tell us about the state of our great river that runs up and down the spine of our land. Uh, a few years ago, we did a, uh, with the University of Minnesota, we were involved in an evaluation or analysis of the Mississippi River. And uh, through that process of uh, measuring particulate matter in the water, we're able to see, first of all, where were the contamination hotspots in the river and how quickly did they correct themselves. And I won't go through all the facts and figures, but uh, suffice to say, the second most contaminated place in the Mississippi in the state of Minnesota was at Anoka at the intake valve of the Minneapolis water supply, which just adds that much more challenge to the municipal water system. The worst part was at Pig's Eye. But once the river slowed down and went through Lake Pepin, and it takes about three days to go through Lake Pepin. When it came out at the other end of the lake, it was almost as clean or as clean as it was in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Then it contaminated a little bit more going through Winona, and it was really in pretty good shape when it left the state. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that it wasn't as, in as good a shape as it was when it started up at uh, Lake Itasca. And if each state has a certain amount of impact on it, it keeps getting worse, and now you know why in New Orleans they drink highballs, mint juleps, and martinis, and don't drink water. <laughs> but we know where the problems are now, we know the causes, and I think everyone is working very hard to rectify those issues and, uh, again, assure their own survival. Thank you. Question from the floor. Is there any likelihood that an accident similar to that which occurred on the Rhine in Switzerland might occur on the Mississippi or any of our major rivers? Absolutely. There's always a possibility of an accident occurring any place and any time. You have all of the, all of the safeguards you can have. A number of years ago in Minneapolis, just north, just upriver from the intake valve, a uh, drum of arsenic was accidentally dropped into the river. And um, it was very closely monitored by the PCA and the Department of Health. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, it dissipated sufficiently just before the intake valve that it was no problem. Now, here's the important thing. That was about a two-inch story on the first page of Part B of the Minneapolis paper. 200 yards later, and it would have been banner headlines this far across the front page that read, 
water supply shut down for the city of Minneapolis because the Department of Health was prepared to do that. And they were asked, what were you going to do at 2 o'clock in the morning? And they said, blow the siren. And I heard it on TV, and the guy said, you've got to be kidding. He said, if you, have an, if you have an emergency, you have a tornado, you blow the siren. How else are you going to tell a million people, don't drink the water when you get up in the morning? And so our problem is we don't really have the backups. Minneapolis has one supply only, and that's the Mississippi River. The suburbs, most of them have groundwater supplies. And the, 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 the Citizens League has talked for years about why don't we combine those or, you know, uh, in, into a double system so the Mississippi can be the backup system for the suburbs and the suburbs can be the backup system for, uh, for, for Minneapolis. But we've not done that because that's costly. Some of those costs will come back to hound us as these problems begin to multiply. Otherwise, you're just hoping on hope. few words on acid rain are requested. Acid rain is an issue that's been around a long time and is always a fun one because it's a nice political issue and the scientists will tell you that's what it is. It's a political issue. It's pretty clear what causes acid rain. It's the burning of fossil fuels that, emis that emits nitric and sulfuric uh, acids into the environment. The problem is that as far as water is concerned, you have two basic kinds of sediments in the lake. One is a buffered sediment and the other is a non-buffered. A buffered sediment means that there's limestone in the bottom of the lake and that serves just like an antacid tablet. So when the acid gets in the, in the lake, the limestone absorbs it and it doesn't have a major impact on the lake. The non-buffered lakes, the hard rock lakes like the Boundary Water Canoe area don't have that and so they're very susceptible. There are way more buffered lakes in the United States than there are unbuffered lakes. So acid rain is not viewed as a national problem. It's a New England, Northern Minnesota, Canadian problem. And the real issue is trying to get enough political support to do something about it. So when you look at acid rain, you know the question is, how will we make or when will that become a great enough issue that it gets on the agenda with the legislature? Because in a democracy, that's the way we do things, folks. We decide what the majority of the people think is most important for all of us. There's a question I'm trying to resurface here about Texas and other states uh, wishing to tap into the Great Lakes and that whole agenda. The Great Lakes Commission, or excuse me, the Great Lakes uh, Charter was formed by all of the states and provinces surrounding the Great Lakes with the realization that if they were going to restrict anybody else from using the Great Lakes, the first thing they ought to do is restrict themselves. So that was the charter that said, in effect, we all of us agree that the whole of the Great Lakes, the sum of the whole, is more important than any of the parts. Therefore, in order for any city or any state around the Great Lakes to withdraw any additional water from the Great Lakes, any more than they're withdrawing originally, they have to get permission from this charter. And the charter also says nobody else can come take it either and then told each state to go back and develop some mechanism to keep 
other states from taking water. Michigan passed a law that says you can't come get it. Wisconsin says that won't fly in court anyway. So they said, you can come get it, but you got to pay us, and we'll put a price on it. And we'll put a big enough price so that you won't do it. But I think the most important thing to understand about the Great Lakes was, was uh, pointed out by the, by the uh, and I wish I could, I don't know his proper title, but he would be like the director of the, of the Department of Interior for Canada. He said, one thing you folks in the United States have to remember and realize is that 12 inches of water in the Great Lakes in the United States is a foot of water in Canada. <laughs> you see, there's no curtain down the middle of those Great Lakes and we can take our half. If you take 12 inches, you're taking six of ours and six of theirs. And you have to get their permission to do it, and they're not about to give that permission. So for Texas to get it, you may have to look at a war with Canada. I think that's unrealistic. I don't think the water will go to Texas. <laughs> this question, in a sense, follows from something you've just said. Have there been significant cooperative projects with Canada in preserving our water resources? Canada has been especially concerned historically with acid rain because they are the dumping pot. We and Lake Erie have been more concerned with Canada from the discharge of the English or St. Clair River systems because Lake Erie became the dumping pot of theirs. Uh, Winnipeg is far more concerned about flooding in the Red River Valley than Minnesota, because it starts in Minnesota and ends up in Winnipeg. And the truth of the matter is, it's always been a kind of a trade-off sort of thing, that the, the hit dog howls, as they say, where I come from. You worry about the issue that affects you most. What's that term again? The hit dog howls. <laughs> I'm from Kansas, and it comes out every once in a while. Uh, remember that one. Uh, what is the latest technology for uh, desalting or desalinization? That question comes up in various forms here to, today. We were going great guns with desalination in the United States based primarily on the technology of distillation. Distillation is a tea kettle boiling and the steam comes off and that's where you take the, take the precipitation off and leave the salt behind except that the energy crisis got us out of that business. Couldn't afford it. And so they developed a technique called reverse osmosis, where you push the water through a very, very fine screen and you leave the salt behind it. It's an expensive technology. It costs about 25 cents a gallon to desalinate. Works fine on um, uh, ships, submarines, um, oil drilling rigs out in the ocean, some limited use along the coast but really would be cost prohibitive for anything more than that. Now, right now, we're building a $15 billion desalination plant in Yuma, Arizona to desalt the Colorado River because of a treaty that we have with Mexico that says they have to be received so many gallons of water in an acceptable level, and they've deemed that the water's too salty, so we're having to build a plant to clean it before it goes to them because we want their oil. But that water has a very, very limited saline level compared to the ocean. And looking at the ocean and saying, there's all that water out there, we ought to be able to use it, is really naive and unrealistic. Certainly, it will be cost prohibitive.
Question. Do you envision a time when states and cities will regulate in migration? How soon? Or are some places like Phoenix already too late? I don't know that they will, they will regulate in migration, but I don't think there's any question in the next 10 years they will begin to regulate what you can do there. And that in itself will regulate migration. Arizona passed a comprehensive state water plan that says in effect by the year 2010 there will be no agriculture in the state of Arizona. They established priorities for water use and uh, uh, irrigation is so far down the list there won't be any. So they're saying their number one priority will be people. Well there's no reason then to restrict the population because that's what they're going for and their water supplies will be used for that. I don't think you can ever tell people they can't go to Arizona, especially from Minnesota. In February, it'd be too unpopular. But if you say you can't do anything down there that takes large amounts of water, you can't have grass, and maybe you can't have a swimming pool, that will determine who goes there and who doesn't go there. And that's the same thing with everybody. In, in agriculture, we're not going to say you can't grow anything, but I do think we'll have federal laws that say you can't irrigate it, not with groundwater, and that will determine whether you can grow corn in Nebraska or in Kansas. And that means then you'll grow corn only where you have sufficient rainfall, like Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, and that would also take care of the surplus. And they would go then into alternative crops, alternative uh, opportunities. Perhaps this is related. What will happen to the dry areas of the United States, for example, the Dust Bowl, if we stop irrigation? <clears throat> I was giving a talk like this over in South Dakota. Senator Abra said, are you trying to tell me that uh, South Dakota is going to become a desert? I said, Senator, it always was. <laughs> All you did was you found water and you made the desert bloom. Count your blessings. If you run out of water, it'll go back to that. Again, remember, I'm from Kansas. We used to be embarrassed about western Kansas. Now they grow 120 bushel to 140 bushel corn at the acre out there on that sand. And we're almost as embarrassed about that. But that doesn't mean it's natural because it's totally artificial. They take sand, that holds the roots, put fertilizer, chemicals, and water all artificially and make corn grow. That's hothouse plant. You got sun and sand free. Well, it doesn't need to go back to uh, tumbleweed. But in Texas, for example, they're experimenting with uh, grapes. Now grapes require a lot of water, but grapes you can also put the water right at the root and have 100% uptake of that water rather than having a broad aerial spray. When you see those irrigators going around, those pivot irrigators, in July on that hot, humid day, 60% of that water is going straight up. Only 40% is coming down. What about the water supply elsewhere in the world? I don't think what we're talking about is terribly unique. In European countries, they faced this problem long before we have, and they've adjusted and modified to it. Canada doesn't have the same kind of problems we have because Canada is not as developed as the United States. But I've, for the last two of the years, we've been going up there to conferences with them. But they're trying to benefit from some of the mistakes we've gone through in the United States. In fact, the thing I always say is you don't have to like your neighbor to pay attention to his stupids. There's no reason for you to do the same dumb things we did. And uh, they listened. In fact, there was a wonderful story there that one farmer told. He was really frustrated, this young man. He, his place was, was 
flooding. And so he decided that he wanted to farm it, so he started draining it. He had some money and he drained the whole place. Put it in the river, it worked just fine. Very successful, so everybody come to see what he did. Congratulated him everything. In five years, his place was flooding again. Couldn't figure out why until he looked. All the other guys did the same thing. Now the water was coming down and he was flooded. You say, well, now, he could have figured that out if he'd come down here and looked around a little bit. We've been doing that for years. The, the concern about the African countries and everything and what can we do about them, the reports I get on that is not much. You can't make rain go where rain won't go. And those, uh, those nations that we had with the real droughts in the last couple of years, they say, as a, the scientists say, is a textbook example of decertification, turning something back to the desert. Overgrazed it, overfarmed it, cut down the trees, eliminated all of the growth that holds water, so the water that comes goes straight through, and the rest of the time there's none there. And about all you can do is leave it and let it get itself back in balance in another couple hundred years or something, and it'll move back in. And it's a classic example for the rest of us to look at. Tell us something about the Freshwater Institute and the impact it is having. Great Freshwater Biological Institute was formed by the Freshwater Foundation and the University of Minnesota back in, they started on it in 1969. Started building in 72, opened the doors in 1974. They do fundamental research on fresh water, primarily on water quality. It's the Department of the College of Biological Sciences of the University of Minnesota. Has about a two and a half million dollar annual operating budget. About half of that comes from federal grants. About 30% comes from the state of Minnesota, and 20% comes from the private sector, contribution and grants. Their focus is now on microbiology and genetic engineering, trying to not invent new bugs, but to change the appetite of bugs that already exist. If you have something that we call a bioaccumulant that nothing will eat, you try to find organisms that eat something like that, and then you try to change their eating habits. An example of that, for example, is in Lake Minnetonka, there is an organism, a bacteria, that cleans up motorboat oil in the wintertime under the ice. Biggest concentrations you'll see about in the boat docks. Now, before there was motorboat oil, that bug ate something else. He just changed his appetite. My wife just taught me to teach asparagus, eat asparagus over the last five years. Genetic engineering. <laughs> well, that's all they're trying to do. And they find an organism that does something close, and then they try to, um, try to modify it. They're working with pentachlorophenol. They're working with the PCBs. Uh, I think 2,4,5-T, but I'm not sure. And uh, a lot of it is a roll of the dice. You work on it, and you hope you get lucky sometime. It's a tremendous organization, uh, unlike you know, any others in the country. Now, there are all kinds of research laboratories, but this one is its, its own uniqueness like they all do. Over 50 scientists from all over the world, and they give open tours for free if you want to go see it sometime. What can people, particularly young people, with their energy, creativity, and idealism do to be part of the solution concerning clean water and a healthy environment? There's two ways to exist. One is individually 
and the other is collectively. If you're an individualist isolated from everybody else, then I think you can write your own rules and live by them. Unfortunately, there aren't any places in the world to do that anymore. So we really exist as a collective society, as a group. Just, and we have to abide by rules, just like if you're going to play football, you have to know the rules and play the rules. You also have to be aware of the fact that when the rules change, you change with them. Be dumb to go out there with an old leather helmet on when everybody else has got those uh, high-impact uh, uh, plastic ones. And what I would suggest to the young people is, you study the rules. Find out how many of those rules apply to reality in nature and to our existence, and how many of them are there just because they always were there, and that's the way we've always done it. And help get those rules changed. And know that if you don't change those rules, that you don't manage those resources for your own existence, it's you or the next generation that won't exist. Old people don't care whether the rules change, they're not going to be that around anyway. So that's the number one thing you do. That means you have to know what's going on, know what the implications are, what the issues are, and then ask the question, are there opportunities, or is there necessity for change, and become a change factor? You've got to be informed. This is a democracy. The only way we do things in this country is when the majority agrees that's something that ought to be done. You have to help convince the majority. How did you become committed to the cause of fresh water? I was offered a job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not all that bad an answer because uh, somebody once said that the students were asking a, a speaker, they said, don't you think these days of idealism back in the 70s are better than back when everybody was just worried about his own welfare and his own vested self-interest. And the speaker said, uh, show me somebody who's worried about his own special interests, and I'll show you somebody, or, or success, and I'll show you somebody worried about mankind, because that's the only way you can be successful. Show me somebody who's only worried about mankind, I'll show you a busybody. So I have a great feeling for vested self-interest. You get somebody that has an interest, and he's a lot easier to move than somebody who just means to do well. So I got a job. Happened to be a fun one, and I've loved every minute of it for 12 years. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But first of all, it was something that I was supposed to do. I've heard it said that eloquence is born of conviction. I've seen a lot of conviction here and much eloquence, and we're indebted to you for alerting us in very important ways. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you.